Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., And here's Ronaldo. He's going all the way. Oh, goodness me. It's a goal to win any football match. Ya está para la derecha para Xavi. Asistencia de Xavi, mezca para esta para Messi, 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 Immense Messi, Ankara 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 Welcome to the Book Club on Football Ramble Presents. I'm Kate Mason. I'm Jim Campbell. And today we're strolling around the Camp Nou with a saucies and eavesdropping on the Bergesia over a coffee at the Gamper Cafe. We'll be trying to scout youngsters for the Messia, considering why Lionel Messi walks and how Johan Cruyff's turn was one of the least interesting things about him. We're taking you inside FC Barcelona. Barcelona have confirmed that Lionel Messi will leave the club and the club has put it down to economic and structural obstacles. Obviously his agent and his father have been going very carefully over the contract and we're hearing that that deal has now been agreed and in place some kind of plan to get Lionel Messi from Barcelona to Paris. We'll be discussing how a small regional club became the greatest powerhouse in world football, how it fell and what comes next, as one of Barcelona's greatest sons and Cruyff's disciple Pep Guardiola explained to his goalkeeper, Victor Valdez, the more you understand football, the more you'll love it. And that's a gift I get every time I read Simon Cooper, and perhaps with this book, most of all. For this episode of Book Club, we're speaking with Simon about his new book, Barca, the inside story of the world's greatest football club. Simon, thank you so much for sitting down with Jim and me for this episode of Book Club. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's great to chat to you about this, particularly perhaps today mm. after um, after the transfer window has closed. And we've seen already some extraordinary things this year from Barcelona. But of course, your book ends with Lionel Messi still a Barcelona player. How does that make you feel looking back at what you've created and now reflecting on where the club goes next? I feel that my book takes you to the moment where he has to leave, where the whole thing has fallen apart. And researching the book, I often felt I was kind of writing about ancient Rome in 400 AD with the barbarians already inside the gates and everything (laughs) crumbling and falling down. So, you know, when I began, I thought I'm writing about the greatness and it ended up being a story of the decline. So how do I feel... I mean, I feel kind of sadness, but also kind of fascination at the spectacle of how quickly all this seems to be disintegrating. Take Griezmann, they bought him in 2019 for 120 million euros. He now seems to be going back to Atletico Madrid free, having pretty much failed in a completely dysfunctional setting for two years. I mean, talk about value destruction. Mm. So it's really a story, a question of how the best team in football within about five years, can just fall apart and end up with a debt of well over a billion pounds. There is a sense, Simon, that you get across so well in the book that, that Barcelona aren't like other football clubs, particularly because of the way that you know the, the Socies, who, who are essentially their members, have, have such an influence. And, and they almost, they, they want to be like a kind of small city club 
that's run in a quite democratic way and it feels like almost like modern football has caught up with them and it's made it untenable and, and impossible. And how did it feel to, to sort of get inside the club and get a real insight into how this pretty unique institution works? I mean, yeah, it is dysfunctional, but most football clubs are badly run <laughs> and all kinds of clubs that are not democracies hit huge trouble. I mean, if you think of meltdowns of the 21st century, Rangers or Leeds or Fiorentina or Parma, you know, none of these were democracies and they hit similar kinds of problems. Yeah. So I'm not sure the democratic structure is a problem. How did it feel? I mean, actually, I came away feeling, you know, having kind of spent a lot of time inside the club and spoken to dozens of people who work there, that it was a little bit like your local cricket club <laughs> or local tennis club, just grown very big mm. in that the club is very much run by people who were born in Barcelona, expect to die in Barcelona. Their whole lives are there. They've known other people inside the club for decades. They, they're very intimate with each other and then they fall out. I mean, if you think of Pep Guardiola and his assistant Tito Villanova, they'd known each other as teenagers in the Masia, the academy. Then they're not running the first team together in the greatest years of the club. And then when Guardiola leaves, to his horror, Villanova decides to stay and take Pep's job. And Guardiola is very angry. They fall out. And when Villanova dies horribly of cancer a couple of years later, Guardiola is banned from the funeral by Villanova's widow. So these kinds of very intimate, close, uh, local relationships are really what defines this club, which is very unusual. I mean, if you think of the big English clubs like Chelsea or Manchester United, they tend to be run by hired hands by very well-paid executives who are going to move on in a couple of years. Mm. It's an interesting point about it reminding you of a cricket club or when you were speaking about it just then, it's making me think of perhaps what you might call more mi minor sports and the way they're run. You know, there's a few big dogs who were important or who played at the top of their sport and then they've just decided to kind of muck in and get involved with trying to run the sport and don't necessarily have the have the tools to do it. it is that what you're comparing it to? Is that what you mean? Because some of these guys, obviously, Joe Laporta take, coming back in, he's a, he's a successful lawyer, so he's done well in a different field. It's not totally... You're not, you're not saying it's totally kind of amateurish. It is a bit amateurish. I mean, I feel a lot of football clubs are a bit amateurish. In Soconomics, we wrote, just as oil is part of the oil industry, stupidity is part of the football industry. <laughs> and, you know, if you look at the Super League debacle, the stupidity of it, and if you think also that many of the world's biggest clubs are run by people who are essentially heirs, people who've never done anything themselves, like the Glazer brothers at Manchester United, the Abu Dhabi royal family at Manchester City, why would they be brilliant? They're not. So I'm not... I don't think that Barcelona is uniquely amateurish, but certainly there's a, there's a there's an amateurish feel, and it's also very kind of in the word people use when talking about the city and the club to me was endogamic, which means um, sort of incestuous, <laughs> in that you appoint your mates and you um, you know one ex president told me that he kept an old mate of his in a big job at the club because he felt bad for the guy was worried about the guy if he you know, lost his job. And so you get a lot of that. It's it's very close. And then someone like Laporta, I mean, you know, there's this small local oligarchy, a kind of merchant families, Catalan speaking, inherit your beautiful apartment from your grandparents. You never sell it. You've known everyone else in the local elite, not just that you know them, but you knew their parents, knew your parents and so on. And so it's a very small group of men who can be end up running for president and winning the presidency. And they all know each other and they've fallen out with each other, etc. Laporte is one of these people. So is the previous president, Bartomeu. So is the previous one, Rosé. So it's, yeah, it's, it's like a kind of small town worthies who, who run this place. It's not sheikhs or billionaires. Well, bearing all that in mind, Simon, it's doubly amazing perhaps that you managed to get so far into this football club that you are sitting down with all of these all of these not just players but people behind the scenes people who've been there for so many years can you take us through it sounds like it's been a basically a lifetime project to get to the point of writing this book but can you take us through how you bred that that trust with these people as, as an outsider complete outsider yeah, I mean, it is not lifetime, but probably 30 years. I first walked into the club in 1992 as a you know, 20, 
two-year-old with a torn jacket um, saying I was writing a book about football, which I was, and asking for an interview with Johan Kauf, my childhood hero, who was then the head coach. It's they so didn't give him to me. It's again, so, so bold. <laughs> When, when you're writing a book and you've been given £5,000 to go around the world and you're sleeping in youth hostels, you get very, you get very bold. You, you kind of learn. For the only time in my life, I was able to go up to people who I didn't know and say, hi, nice to meet you, and start conversations. So I, I, I became very, very aggressive in my approach and I ended up interviewing Krauss assistant. And I'd grown up in Holland. So he was my childhood hero. And then I kept going back to Barcelona over the decades. And... Not to be immodest, but there was a significant moment in 20, 2007. They award this annual sports writing prize. And God knows why or how, but in 2007, it was given to me. And when I was back there in 2019 writing an article for the Financial Times, they said to me, yeah, well, when you're here, we're giving out the prize to this Italian woman, Emanuela Audicio, and we're having a lunch. And the ex-winners have to be there. And you have to be there. You have to be there. And they kept you know, checking on me that I was going to be there. And so I go to this lunch. And the president, Bartomeu, is there and various directors. And it's in, a, it's in a nook in the Camp Nou, in the stadium. And it's one of these Catalan lunches that goes on a long time. And <laughs> keep, you know, new wines, new courses. And at about four or five in the afternoon, we're still there, drinking wine, having a great time, chatting about all sorts of stuff. And I thought, hang on, I'm not really a journalist for them. I'm, I've become a member. They see me as a soci too. They see me as a kind of alum. And when I was on that trip for the FT, whenever I asked for an interview with anyone, the people at Barcelona would say, yeah, sure, no problem. So the president gave me a shirt with my name on the back and I interviewed the head coach and I interviewed all these nutritionists and doctors and youth coaches and psychologists and social media experts at the club. And I, you know, fo- you know that access in football is really difficult. It's usually hugely regimented. You have to beg for weeks for a fifteen-minute, completely pointless interview with a player. And so yeah, I went it's home like sponsored thought, by a car or whatever. They're like, yeah, oh, and yeah, then you have I really to ask him car. about. Let me tell you about it. Yeah, yeah you have to <laughs> ask him about his car, and uh, then you ask him about football, and he says, "Well, um, we just hope to play well the next match, and hopefully, we'll win." Mm. And so, it, 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 you know, I, I gave up writing about football day to day because it, it was just so depressing and pointless and often stupid. And so I went home from that Barcelona trip and I wrote the article for the Financial Times. And I thought, there's really more here than an article. I, I, I should really think about writing a book, given I have this. It's the only place in football where I have access, but it also happens to be the biggest football club in the world. Mm. And so I wrote to my uh, contacts at Barcelona. I said, if I came back and did a book, would you still set up interviews? You know, would you still help me out? And they said, yeah, why not? And so I um, planned the book and I'd make these repeated trips to Barcelona and beautifully the people from the press office, you know, I'd, I'd say I'd like to speak to X, Y, and Z. And they spend the whole day driving me around and I'd walk around the Camp Nou and have coffees. I got to know all the cafes around the Camp Nou. This is before the pandemic. And um, so you'd meet somebody for um, tapas and you meet somebody else for coffee and then a beer. And just, just I, I became a kind of local at the Camp Nou. And um, so, yeah, and the club, to its huge credit, never tried to censor or pre-read or make anything difficult at all about uh, what I was writing. And the only real contact I had with them later about the book was um, this guy I know there wrote to me and he said, I've received a copy of your book. I haven't read it yet, but I'm so pleased for you. Well done. You did a book. Oh. And I wrote back to him and said, look, you're a gentleman. You, you know, this doesn't happen in football that people just let you do this stuff and then don't try and, don't try and regulate it. I'm actually kind of amazed by yeah. that. I mean, you get that impression definitely reading it. Well, yeah, I mean, there is, there's a sort of kindness culture that you touch on quite a lot at Barcelona. It's sort of revolutionary. Firstly, in, in the Masia, um, in terms of how the, 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 the hierarchy at the club seem to understand that what they're doing is, in some cases, is taking children away from their families and giving them a, a high-pressure environment in a day-to-day sense. So, obviously, that has to come with a lot of, a lot of care and a lot of attention to, to kind of level that up. But it sounds like that that kind of permeates the club at every level, that it has managed to stay like a sort of friendly local institution, despite going on to be, you know, to, to, to produce some of the greatest teams football has ever seen. And do you think, do you think that will remain in this sort of situation they're in now? Is, is, that, is that part of the problem of, of, of people being maybe a little bit too relaxed and kind of slept walked into this situation? 
I think friendliness in some ways is a competitive advantage. So in English youth academies, I think English football clubs generally for many decades were modelled on the army. That was the kind of most idealised male institution and a lot of uh, British men for decades had either been in the army or grown up admiring their fathers in the army. And so at British youth academies, and I describe one that I visited in the book, often the coach behaves like a kind of sergeant major screaming at the kids, a kind of 1950s sergeant major, let's say, screaming at the kids, bullying at them, telling them they're rubbish, everything, and the kids have to clean boots in the old days. They don't do that anymore. And so, yeah, very hierarchical, very strict, very obedience-based, and very unpleasant. If you're a teenager, it's a terrible place to be. I would never let my kids join if they were in that position, an English academy of the kind that I've seen and described in the book. Just horrible. And, of course, 90-odd percent of the kids never make it anyway. They don't become pros. They just have this terrible experience. And then their schooling is disrupted because no attention was paid for a long time to education. And you're left on the streets at 16. Now, Barcelona, very different. Um, they do have this kind of paternalistic attitude to kids. And it's a huge advantage in many ways because you don't lose children who are good footballers to bullying or to unhappiness. They, they thrive, they prosper. Half the kids in the Messiah go on to university. So Guardiola and Iniesta started university and then were distracted from being in the first team. But so, yeah, it's, it's a very successful <laughs> way to run an academy. Friendliness can be a problem in other ways. So, for example, you know, one of the clashes within Barcelona is Dutch directless with Latin politeness. And <laughs> yeah. in Dutch changing rooms, people will say, you screwed up. You should be 10 meters further forward or you're not tracking back with your fullback. And of course, you know, there are problems with that, but it's quite a useful way of transmitting information quickly. And <laughs> so the Dutch do that and it, it works. But one Dutchman told me when Louis van Gaal would say, maybe the wingers could, you know, track back a little bit. Luis Figo would take that as a huge personal insult. And he'd say, why are you blaming us? It's the defenders. <laughs> because in Latin, in Spanish Catalan culture, it's much harder to criticize people. And that can be a problem because it makes it harder to transmit information. So there, there's ups and downs. But I think generally running an organization in a friendly way has a lot of benefits beyond just being morally correct. It's interesting, though, that you say that about Masia. Particularly, I think you said in Soconomics about how lots of clubs fail to bed in their new signings. And I'm, of course, thinking now of Usman Dembele, who mm. seemed to be left quite um, quite neglected, perhaps, when he arrived in Barcelona. I think that the talent at Barcelona is so autonomous and so powerful. And nowadays, you know, you're earning, let's say, £10 million a year at Barcelona. So you arrive as a foreigner with your entourage. In Dembele's case, I think he had an uncle and a friend living in a house with him, and he had a, a personal chef. He keeps sacking the personal chef, as I described in the book. And so actually the problem for clubs now is not so much helping the player bet in, but just getting any contact with the player at all. Because if you ask to speak to the player, if the club wants to speak to the player about something, the player will say, call my agent. And then a meeting will be arranged and the player shows up with his agent, his father, his girlfriend, and a couple of other blokes who you can't really work out who they are or how they fit in. <laughs> and the club will say, well, you know, there's something we want to address with you. And then the whole entourage will answer back and the player says nothing and plays with his mobile phone. So it's, it's now um, much more difficult for the club to arrange something for the player. And the player is running his own personal business. You know, he has his agent, he has a psychologist, he has his chef, he has his fixer. And they are really the ones who are responsible or not for helping him bed in in local culture. So I think things have moved on since that relocation issue, which I described in Soconomics. Let's talk a bit more about um, conflict, shall we? And and the key man, probably probably the key man, certainly one of the two key men of this of this story, Johan Cruyff, because that wasn't that part, conflict was part of his model of coaching, mm. as I understand it from reading the stories of how he how he managed his players and 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 his staff. And yet he built this cathedral of football. Yeah, I mean, Johan Krev, in, in my humble opinion, he's the kind of Freud or Marx or Einstein of football. He invented modern football. So the football played by Liverpool or Bayern Munich or Manchester City or Italy, that's what he invented. We play in the other team's half. We have the ball all the time. The second we lose the ball, we press to win it back. 
we keep interchanging positions and you have to make tr- passing triangles on the field. So he invented it. It works. But he was also a lunatic and he uh, had no interest in hearing what other people thought. Krauf was a guy who walks into a room and says, you're doing it all wrong. You should do it. You should do what I say. And so he do this in any situation. He, he had this belief, for example, that the traffic lights in Amsterdam were in the wrong place. And so he <laughs> had the right to ignore them because they were wrongly, oh, no. oh, wow. wrongly distributed. I didn't realize he was actually ignoring them. <laughs> yeah, no, he, he didn't believe in, in obeying red and green lights. He, he thought that, that, was, um, that was for people who didn't understand. That is astonishing. So, um, so Craig was a hugely problematic character. And it's true, as you say, that he believed that conflict was a productive way to run a team because if you have conflict then people have something to prove and it's a way to bring out people's arguments but i think that was just a justification for his own very bizarre personality he liked conflict he distrusted harmony and his uh, he has many followers in football chief among them guardiola but they've all dropped the conflict model they all uh, believe in in kind of uh, trying to explain things and listening to what the other person has to say so i don't think conflict was his secret he had other secrets do you want to tell us more about the other secrets? Yeah, so he had intuited how football works. He had intuited modern pressing attacking football in the 60s as a teenager, working with Rinus Michels, who also deserves credit. Michels was the coach of Ajax, later of Holland and of Barcelona. And he arrives at Ajax in the 60s, a semi-professional team, one of the three or four teams of Amsterdam. And he and Kraut have this crazy idea they're going to turn it into the world's best team, and they do. And so they, they're like Lennon and McCartney, mutual irritation and inspiration. So that's one idea. The other idea that Krauf had, which turned out to be correct, is that actually in football, being small is an advantage. So you know English football always privileged the big kid. Mm. And so the youth academies filled up with the biggest 13-year-olds who would win the tackles, kick the ball furthest, win the headers. And they turn out to be not very good footballers. And Krauf said, look, I don't care how big or small you are. I myself was tiny and weak. And when I was 15, I couldn't lift a corner in front of goal, he'd say. Um, but the thing about football has got nothing to do with that. It's just about passing triangles. Football is geometry. He said football is a game you play with your head. And smaller players are actually uh, quicker thinkers because they have to get rid of the ball quickly before the big lad mows them down. And so Barcelona was the almost the only club that gave tiny kids like Safi and Yesta, Messi a chance. And it turned out to work. And so now you see what's happened. And one reason that they've declined is everyone copied them. So you see English football producing the kind of players it never used to produce before, like Jaden Sancho or Phil Foden or, um, or Sacco, all these little guys who can play football. And everyone essentially copied the Masia. And when everyone is the Masia, the Masia, Barcelona's youth academy loses its competitive advantage. So really what I've tried to say in the book is the story of the last 20 years is all football became Kraufian. And then Barcelona, as the pioneering Kraufian club, became were left behind. So Simon, you've mentioned already that you you when you were when you were young and you were starting out, you you walked into to Barcelona and tried to get an interview with Johan Cruyff. Eventually you did meet the man and you talk a lot of, you talk a little bit about that in the book. And it's kind of um that must have been a real personal landmark to, to to finally get your interview with Johan Cruyff. But what was, how do you approach interviewing somebody who is such an enigma and is known to be such a difficult character? And sort of how how did that play out? Well, I had this. It was in two thousand, and he was already retired, and he was becoming less interesting as retired people often do because they stop thinking because they don't have to think as hard. So he uh, he was no longer the, this brilliant original man. But I wanted to interview him about English football because I'd noticed in his interviews over the years that he he's an Anglophile. He was a massive Anglophile. He loved the country. He loved its football. And whereas most Dutch people are very condescending and condescending and snooty about English football and see as this kind of backward traditional right, like you know tribes doing rain dances that don't work, <laughs> he he always liked it. And so I interviewed him about you know how he'd grown up in the fifties worshiping Tommy Lawton and Stanley Matthews and he loved all the English clubs he never got a chance to play there because you know the borders were closed to foreign players uh, but that this he he just loved the authenticity of the whole thing so we had a very nice two hours and then later we fell out horribly because um, he'd done a deal with the Observer newspaper that I was writing for. And that fell apart. And then I wrote about it months later in a small Dutch magazine about what it had been like to meet my hero. And he felt I was ripping him off. So then he did what Kraft does. He, he went into conflicts and he attacked me 
Oh, he got his pet lap dogs in the Dutch media to tap me. So it was a very upsetting experience. Um, I liked him when we met, but it's part of the never meet your hero uh, mm. uh, idea. It's, a sh- it's oh, clearly it's a shame, but in a sense, it really does feel like the the only legitimate culmination of the Johan Cruyff experience is that you you end up falling out with him. That's that's just part of the man's legend, isn't it? In a way, yeah, you'd be missing out if you didn't have a conflict with Cruyff. <laughs> How do you feel about it now, Simon? Are you? Because I, well, well, the reason I'm asking is because I really one of the really good things in the book, one of the many really good things in the book is um, is the way that you managed to write about Cruyff in particular. So you you know pay testament to what a genius he is and how much respect you have for him. But you also, perhaps in a Dutch way, you you are pretty clear about the unpleasantnesses. And as a reader, I feel it, it doesn't feel conflicted. It just feels like a proper whole. Like you're just drafting a true likeness of a character which is a incredibly impressive thing to be able to do thanks i mean look he's a fascinating brilliant uh lovely and horrible uh three-dimensional character and i'd always felt there should be a book about craig in english because one of the strange things is he's he's this name that everybody in football recognizes but actually outside holland and catalonia nobody really knows him well because his career was not televised internationally except that one month of the world cup 74 And, you know, the way he taught the Dutch through thousands of interviews and taught the Catalans through interviews and press conferences all the time, how football works, that never really went beyond those two places. And so I wanted to kind of tell the world about Krauf. And so that that is a big part of what the book's about. And I think having had a conflict with him stopped me from writing a hagiography because 20 (laughs) years ago, I began taking notes for a Krauf biography that would undoubtedly have become a hagiography. But I hope I've been a bit more distant in writing this one all right so we've uh, we've we've touched a bit on Cruyff and I think we need to come on to another key man in the history of Barcelona certainly the recent history so we're gonna get to a break quickly now and then we'll be back in a minute in middle than geen tijd uitgegroeid tot een volwaardig international Rense Brink stuurt daar Krol op links weg dan komt de voorzet en is Cruyff is goed en is goal 2-0 van de juwel van het doelpunt Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Welcome back to the book club with me and Jim in your ears this time. And with us today, Simon Cooper talking about his new book, Barca, the inside story of the world's greatest football club. Okay, before the break, we talked Cruyff. We're now going to go into Lionel Messi, if you'll indulge us. I mean, it's hard actually having this interview not to just sit here and be like, what's Messi like? What's so-and-so like? What's PK like? Blah, 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 for about an hour. But we'll try, we're trying not to do that. We're trying to have a bit more structure, Simon. Um... Yeah, Lionel Messi has, since the since you finished the book, has played his first game for Paris Saint-Germain. Did he watch it? <laughs> what do you think about that? Uh, I didn't watch it. I mean, strangely, Messi and I have made opposite journeys because I've moved to Spain for a year and he's moved to Paris for a year. Hmm. I was living in Paris for most of the last 20 years. Another big so, falling uh, out from you there, Simon, probably. Um, yeah, we're like <laughs> chips passing in the night. So what do I feel about that? It's... 
I, I mean, his significance in Barcelona is so much bigger than just being the world's greatest footballer. He's become the, the totem of the club. And so for the club to lose its totem is like a, a death. So there is a kind of mourning in Catalonia. And I, I think it's, you know, in fictional terms, this is the, the denouement that you needed. This is the end of the story. Mm. And while writing the book, I kept waiting for the end of the story. Is he going to leave before I finish writing or not? And in fact, he left just after I finished writing. The day that the first extract of my book was published, August 5th, that morning, both Messi and I woke up separately thinking that he was going to stay at Barca. And so extract is published. And that afternoon, Barcelona tells him, sorry, Leo, we don't have any money at all. You have to go. And so he is as shocked as I am. And he weeps genuinely because he wanted to stay there with his family. Not, not so much because he loves the club. Footballers don't love their clubs. But because he had a, a, a wonderful life with his wife and kids and he... It had been a, a brilliant employer-employee relationship for most of the 17 years. It's, there's some really interesting insight into, into Messi in the book, which is one of the, the real highlights of it for me. There was a very depressing part of it, actually, I have to say, where you talk about how Messi, sort of, relatively speaking for a footballer, actually ate quite badly until he was 30. So that there is this sense that footballers are you know, really, really dedicated to their nutrition and that, that that's why they're so much more impressive than, than you know, your common or garden everyday person. But it sounds like he is actually just some sort of superhuman, just some sort of complete freak of nature who w- w- may never be repeated again almost. Yeah, I mean, he has become, begun living much more healthily in his latter years. So the World Cup 2014, I mean, Messi would commonly vomit, as several, a lot of players do, mm. in the changing room before matches. But that was because of nerves, because he feels this enormous pressure that he has to win the match. It's, it, it's not just he has to do his job. He has to win the match if things aren't working out. Mm. But then in, at the World Cup 2014, he, he'd sometimes also vomit on the pitch because of bad nutrition you know he he liked these milanese as these kind of um cheese covered steaks which are not in nutritional guides for athletes and he drinks soft drinks and then in 27 2014 he thought right enough i'm fading and so he has since gone almost vegan during the season he does now he's incredibly healthy but yeah he is a freak of nature who will never be repeated and you know because he was so brilliant he during in the youth academy i tried to teach him how to pass and he said, look, I'm not going to bother. I just, you know, that's not what I do. I just dribble through teams in school. It was only in the first team that they actually forced him to pass. So he only learned that about 2021, at the age of 20 or 2021. And this is the progress you chart him becoming a, a foot, not just an individual footballer, but man of the collective. Yeah, I mean, I think the problem with being a, a genius is that you can break rules on nutrition and on collective play. And Maradona, of course, is the great example of that. And I think Messi might have been Maradona, but because he was at Barcelona and because he's living in this era of hyper-professionalism, which Maradona didn't, A, he became not just the world's best individual, but also the world's best collective player because he actually learned the lessons of this Krauffian passing. And B, he ended up living professionally. So people say, you know, Messi, Ronaldo, who's better? Well, Messi is better, but really the bigger question is why did we get two such brilliant players who have been brilliant for nearly 20 years week in, week out? at the same time and that's because this is the professional era of football players look after themselves like never before but also referees look after them so Maradona and Krauf and Pelé were kicked all the time Messi and Ronaldo are protected by referees because they have to star on television so Mm. yeah I mean he he became a product of hyper-professionalism there is a sense as well and we we talk about this a lot we we see players like Robert Lewandowski don't seem to be slowing down Ronaldo and Messi are obviously examples as well where good players seem to be good for longer and in some cases even seem to get better as they're older so I think we all feel like we are in an age where Ronaldo and Messi are are like you know the two one-offs almost but do you think it's possible that we're actually this this will become the new normal and that players will will be older for, for longer the top top players Yeah, it's already happening. It's happening in a number of sports. Uh, Tennis is another good example. Uh, Or Tom Brady, the quarterback who just won another Super Bowl, the NFL, age 43. But if you look at Serena Williams or Roger Federer, and one of my highlights of the book was interviewing Federer in his private plane about Messi. And when I asked about Messi, he got very, very excited and he leaned in and he asked like a fan, he said, have you met Messi? And then he said, I don't know (laughs) 
he said, I've only met his parents. I met them at a tournament in Argentina. He was very excited, and, and he drew a lot of parallels between himself and Messi. Oh, so, but yeah, in, in tennis as well, because everyone looks after themselves better, you, you have longer mm. careers. And essentially in football in the early 90s, the clubs made a deal with the best players. They said, look, we will pay you millions from TV, but you've got to look after yourself. You can't drink anymore. Um, you can't be a George Best or a Maradona. Uh, will you become corporate man in exchange for these enormous rewards? And the best footballers said yes. And the ones who weren't willing to do that, like say Mario Balotelli, they weren't actually able to sustain themselves at the top anymore because the physical demands at the top have become so extreme, much more than they were in the 90s. There is actually a line in the book about Mario Balotelli that I, I wanted to ask you about because you kind of brush over it really quickly and it feels like there's a story there where you say that you were told by someone that coached him that his problem was that he kept falling in love. Yeah, that was his agent, uh, Mino Raiola, who's much maligned in the game, but I actually... I really liked him, absolutely. Maybe he I comes across really well, actually. Yeah, we said that as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I think he's a he's a kind of born wheeler dealer. She learned in his father's pizza restaurants growing up as an immigrant boy in Holland. But, I, I mean, one thing that Raiola does very well is he looks after his players because, you know, agents are always seen as the bad boys, but actually agents tend to treat players better than clubs do. Clubs really just see players as, uh, you know, objects for use. And once the player is no no more of no more value, you just want to throw them away like you throw away a broken bucket. And so, um, you know, the idea that the club will look after one of its 25 players better than the agent will, I think, is usually incorrect. So, um, yeah, Raiola was talking about Balotelli's tendency to fall in love and that Balotelli, he said, hadn't placed football at the centre of his life. And Raiola contrasted that with people like Pogba and other of his clients, who's also very, I think, unfairly maligned, or Ibrahimovic, who do place football at the centre of their lives. So just to clarify, Balotelli was sort of wandering around like this sort of Hugh Grant figure, <laughs> just being enraptured Appar by various people. Apparently so. When Raiola said that about falling in, you know, that he fell in love and, and got distracted, I, I, I think I was too embarrassed to pry further <laughs> and didn't do it. So tell me more. So who is he falling in love with now? I, I, I left it at that. Yeah. It's like the only other thing you said you didn't get into is this subject of uh, dressing room nudity. <laughs> yeah, which I think must be very significant. Um, but I, it's a difficult thing to ask about in interviews. Did you try? Um, no, a friend of mine did actually once ask a, a footballer about this and got, got some interesting uh, insights. But no, I didn't try. Fair enough. Fair enough. You did. I mean, it's pretty encyclopedic. What it is the uh, what was it? The chocolate brownie with whey protein recipe that you uh, that you included. Chucking in this, it's not only a story of Barcelona. It's also how to eat like a player from Barcelona. How to become a Barcelona player potentially, which Jim and I are very excited about subsequently, especially now that there's a, of course a women's or pretty successful women's uh, team as part of the major part of the club. Yeah, that thing about the, about footballers being used by their football clubs is a really interesting one. It reminds me of, you know, how they said in greyhound racing, greyhounds teeth aren't looked after at all because they the teeth, if you don't brush them, they will just fall out age four, which is the age that greyhounds stop racing. So there's no point in trying to look after the mouths of a greyhound if all you're going to do is get it to race and then send it to the whatever the greyhound equivalent is of, of the knack is. And, and I think... Um, it's interesting when you say that footballers don't love their clubs. In any cases, would you say that? No, I mean, I'm sure there are some footballers who love their clubs. But look, once you peek behind the curtain, and, and you'll know that as a sports broadcaster yourself, once you peek behind the curtain, you see that it is a job. And if you listen to the language footballers use, they talk about themselves as professionals. They keep using the word career. And that mm. is how they experience it. The club is an employer. It might be a good employer. They might have a very happy relationship with it. But it's, a, it's very much a kind of mutual exchange. And I think actually the relationship with the club has become more distant as their entourages have grown, as they hire their own physios, their own uh, psychologists, their, their agent becomes you know, a dominant figure in the entourage. So footballers don't have a huge sense usually that their life is within the club. They've hired out their talents to the club for, let's say, two or three hours a day, 
usually for two or three years, and then they will move on. And you have one of the difficulties of changing rooms, you have 20 players each thinking of their own career. And the coach is the only one who's trying to get a collective performance, or that's his focus. And during the book, I interviewed Kylian Mbappe, and Mbappe said, look, most footballers are only thinking about their individual performance on the field. And Mbappe said, because my father was a coach and my uncle was a coach, and from the age of four, I was in changing rooms in Paris amateur football, listening to tactical talks and listening to the coach on the way back complain about his player's selfishness. He said, that has helped me to see the collective aim of each game. And he said, I can see when another player in my team is struggling with something psychologically. But he said, most players can't see that. That's just not what they're there for. They're there to do their own job so that they will... Um, be appreciated and be rewarded. And it's not true that they're just chasing money. They're chasing career success. They're like ambitious professionals in any field. They want to be successful. And then, of course, the money follows. So, yeah, I think to, to, to imagine that the player thinks like a fan is to completely misunderstand the nature of is it, what it is to be a player. And would, th- would that also be true of um, the, the Masia graduates, the Xavi, Iniesta, PK generation? As they se- obviously, they seem to be a very, very special generation that came from the clubs, the, the clubs like world-famous academy. And obviously, you've got Messi, the, the greatest player to ever play the game in that. Is that also true of them? Or, or was that part of what made that generation so special that they did have that link to the club? I'm always sceptical. I mean, of course, they had a brilliant time. They, they loved they would never have wanted to work anywhere else than the best club in the world with mm. great players who win everything, of course. But imagine if that generation, those same people, had all come up at the same time and they'd been 15% less good. And so they didn't win anything. And, you know, so it's disappointing. And then you get an offer from a better club. Of course they would go. Just like Steven Gerrard very strongly thought about leaving Chelsea, just like Jamie Carragher and other of these people who said to love their club, says in his autobiography, look, if I'd have been benched at Liverpool, I would have left because I didn't want to be on the bench. Mm. Um, Harry Kane, another example. I mean, you know, one club man, right, comes out of the academy, but he tried to leave this summer. And I don't blame him for that. I don't blame any of these people for that. I blame the fans for this ludicrous idea that the player who happens to have grown up at your club has the same relationship to the club that you, a fan, do. Of course he doesn't. He's on the inside. Mm. He is in an employer-employee relationship, and that's also true of Barcelona. And with the Greyhound comparison, it makes perfect sense because it only works out for the player as long as the players and the club's interests are, are aligned, right? Which I suppose shines quite a lot of light on on Messi moving to Paris Saint-Germain because everyone who's a fan was hoping he'd make some sort of... I don't, I don't even know what the move would be. I joked about Leeds United, but some some sort of romantic move to somewhere that wasn't PSG. But was that the only logical thing he could do? Well, he, he wanted to stay, I think, largely for family reasons, because when he told his wife and three sons last year that he wanted to leave, they all burst into tears. And that was a big shock for him. So I think this summer he thought, look, I'm 34. I've only got two or three top years left. Might as well stay in Barcelona. We're all happy here. The team is quite good. It's fine. <laughs> and then when well, he had to leave, of course he went to the best possible club. You know, Messi is, is, a, is a brilliant footballer. He wants to play really good football. Uh, it's very hard to play your best football with mediocre players. So if Messi had In the gone Argentina to, national team, for example. Yeah, it's really hard. So Messi will see a pass. And to him, it's obvious. Like, of course, I'm going to pass into that space. Can't you see? And the player can't see. I mean, uh, Messi has played with Argentina with some really poor players. I've watched it at World Cups. Um, Federico Fernandez, who I think went to Swansea. Uh, Jonas Rodriguez, who was a winger at Newcastle, playing fullback for Argentina, who actually struggled to stay upright because his balance was so poor. And, you know, Messi does his best, but it's very hard for him to... He gets very frustrated. So at one point he has has a fight in the changing room with Nicolas Berdiso, this midfielder. Because Bordiso can't get him to can't get him the ball during the game. And Messi is thinking, why can't you get me the ball? It's so easy. You just have, here I am, just have to pass to me. But for players of that quality, it's genuinely difficult. And so, of course, he wants to express himself to his utmost. And he's going to do that as a team with great players. And the way football works is the teams with great players are the teams with money. So he wants to play with Neymar and Mbappe. He doesn't want to play, you know, for Scunthorpe. <laughs> oh, what a shame. 
Nej, som skantor. Yeah. Sorry, skantor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Massive disrespect. <laughs> uh, yeah, so look, we talk... You, this, is, this takes us back to what's happened to Barcelona generally, doesn't it? Because what you chart is Messi as a powerful figure who uses his body language to express displeasure in ways that make everybody in Barcelona and in the whole region of Catalonia, as far as I can tell, quake. Now, were you, were you yourself quaking at the idea of writing about him in such terms? No, I mean, I, I write what I think. I, 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 you see, a lot of sports journalists, they have a, a day-to-day relationship with the club they're writing about. So if you go to Manchester United, there are 100 or so journalists who are in the press conference every week. And if those people write something nasty about the coach or a player or the club, they can be shut out. And so they have to maintain their ongoing relationship by not always writing what they think. I don't. I've written this book. I might never write about Barcelona again. Uh, I, I I just write what I think. And if I, I burn bridges, so be it. I, I, that, that was never a consideration. When I started the book, I thought Messi's not very interesting. He's a great player, but there's nothing really to say about him. He doesn't have a personality, which I think is a view that a lot of people had a couple of years ago. As soon as I began researching and speaking to people inside the club, I realized, wow, he's a terrifying little man. They're all afraid of him. And he, he's the biggest power broker inside the club. And so every for the last 15 years, they pursued a messy strategy, meaning mm-hmm. that every transfer, every appointment of a coach, every tactical change, they thought, what will Messi think? And so, you know, they hired coaches nobody else would have hired, like Tata Martino, who was a, from the same town in Argentina as Messi, had a good relationship with the family. Tito Villanova was appointed partly because he had been Messi's favorite youth coach. And Messi thinks coaches are idiots. He doesn't really care what the coach does. But he likes a coach who's a nice guy. And so uh, they, they did that. They got rid of Ibrahimovic, who had scored, I think, in all his first five league games for Barcelona. But Messi indicated to Guardiola, this was before Messi began to talk. After one game, uh, Messi's sulking in the bus, and Guardiola is very sensitive, as like everyone else in Barcelona, very sensitive to every mood of Messi. So Guardiola is good at getting people to talk. So he says, Leo, what's up? And Messi indicates, look, I cut him from the right. I run into the middle. And when I get there, I do not want a massive Swede standing in my way shouting, give me the ball, give me the ball, because that, that's what Ibrahimovic <laughs> does. That's his game. And so poor old Ibrahimovic, no fault of his own. He was playing his game. He was doing it perfectly. Is benched and then kicked out of the club within a year because Messi has said, look, I don't care how much money you spent on this guy. I don't need him. And what we see as the book winds towards this tragic, perhaps tragic denouement is that this is not a very good long-term strategy if you're hoping for your football club to last beyond the career of Lionel Messi. Well, I think it it was a good long-term strategy because you have the world's best player, you keep him on board and playing brilliantly for 15 years, let's say, and you win everything. And okay, I mean, in the end, it goes over the top and you pay him more than £100 million a season. It contributes to the financial meltdown of the whole edifice. And things fall apart. But, you know, greatness never lasts. No human creation lasts. And this lasted longer than probably any great football team in history or lasted a hell of a long time. And so I'd say kudos to Barcelona. The Messi strategy worked really well until it stopped working. I mean, I would have abandoned this and kind of wound it down two or three years earlier, easy to say with hindsight. But, um, you know, they had this problem before of having the world's best player in the club, Maradona, Johan Kreuf. Uh, the German Bernd Schuster was a brilliant player of the 80s, and it never worked out. And Schuster said, all stars leave Barcelona through the back door. Well, with Messi, it worked out, so kudos. Ronaldinho was another world's best player who then mm. disintegrated quickly. It's interesting. It seems to have come at a cost, though, doesn't it, of, of kind of placating Messi and essentially a lot of the, the ethos of the way the team played gradually changing through the standard sliding a little bit. And you've obviously spent a lot of time in the machinery of the club, and... Obviously, the financial side of it is absolutely huge. We've seen they've lost lost Messi and Antoine Griezmann quite surprisingly in in this window. And I mean, how do you think they weather this storm? And do you think can they weather it? Can they get back to where they were? Can they get back to the absolute pinnacle of football, which is where they feel they belong? I don't see them getting back to the pinnacle for years to come. No, I mean their wage budget now because the Spanish league won't let them keep overspending, keep spending money they don't have. So their wage budget now is more or less on the level of Everton or Aston Villa. Well, if your wage budget is the same as Everton or Aston Villa, why would you 
be better than Everton or Aston Villa. So I think that's mm. the level that we should expect them to be performing at. For the and next as we while. know from Soconomics, the only what is it the key factor in how you perform is the level of your wage bill. Yeah, very very largely. Certainly over the longer term, wages determine league position with almost iron precision. So yeah, I I don't think we're going to see them much better. I think their battle now. They've got about two players that the rest of the world wants, uh, Frankie de Jong and Pedri, maybe Ansu Fati if he comes back well. And their battle now will be to hang on to those players because rival big clubs are ruthless. And they're all saying to, looking at Barcelona and saying, I see you guys have more than a billion pounds in debt, but this Pedri is a nice little player. I think mm. we could take him off your hands. So that, that could be the next dramas to come. Yeah, we were surprised it wasn't even more of a fire sale. We saw Emerson Royal joining Spurs straight away just now, but it, you expected them to be just st- st- completely stripped out. Well, I mean, most of the players they wanted to sell, nobody would buy. Players <laughs> like Mtiti and Pjanic. And then the players they didn't want to sell were the ones that other clubs did want. And so it might yet come to that. Yeah, I mean, they're still way above wage budget. Even when Messi left, they were still spending 95% more or less of revenues on wages. And their revenues are going to keep falling because... You know, their sponsorship contracts are losing value. Uh, La Liga's TV contracts are going to lose value as La Liga declines. So I, I think there is more pain to come. But you've seen that, they've seen that before. You said in 2003, I think, they were spending way over their revenues in, in player wages as well. Yeah, and then in 2003, this thing happened, which is this 16-year-old kid <laughs> comes out of the youth academy and plays his first game in a friendly against FC Porto, coached by this young FC Barcelona alum coach called Jose Mourinho, and the rest is history. Hmm. So in 2003, they were in big trouble, and then um, they got lucky. So in summary, you need a miracle, basically. If another Messi comes out of the youth academy now, I think they'll be okay, but I, I, I wouldn't put all my remaining savings on that. It sounds as though you think the Masia is done is is not well success- everyone became the Masia. i mean when 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 the english and the germans have copied la Masia, and the english are producing barcelona like players and marco verratti has come out of a an academy in pescara in italy and he's the next savvy then you know what is barcelona's selling point when the whole world copies you that's the problem with being number one you get lazy and everyone else copies you and that's what happened to them so why would the Masia be great again no Academy in history, anyway, is ever going to produce the as good a generation as Barcelona produced. They produced seven of Spain's World Cup winners in 2010, plus the world's best footballer. That's just never going to happen again. So when people say, oh, well, Barcelona should just go back to their past and rely on the, the Masia, that's just a fantasy. Mm. It's, like, it's like saying, oh, we'll just get another Cruyff. It's, it's not as simple yeah, as that, Yeah, no is it? problem. Yeah, let, let's just turn out the boys from the Masia now and they'll be Messi, Savvy and Iniesta. Uh, life doesn't happen that way. In your walks around uh, around the club and talking to people, did you feel as though there was anyone there or any group of people there who had who had the fo- who had the kind of innovative football brains? Because it sounds as though you feel as though lots of people were so you know had such a lot of intricate knowledge about their different element, you know, the nutrition, the psychology, all of these different things. They had some really precise knowledge, perhaps not uh, the boss of the Masia. Um, did you feel as though there was innovation still in within the club? Is there any source of possibility in the future in FC Barcelona right now? Well, I think it's a very exciting moment for them. And if Krauf were alive and at the club, he would love this moment. Because when you lose Messi and you have a billion pounds in debt, billion plus, it's time to start thinking. And now it's time to start thinking and to start innovating. And, you know, I was talking to a guy I know inside the club and he was talking about how we can turn it around and what we need to do. And these kinds of deep thought moments hadn't really occurred at the club for 15 years because they got lazy. Why would you start thinking when your first team is the best in the world? And so what they need to do now is not go back to the past because the past doesn't exist. In football, every year football gets better. 2021, the football is better than it was in 2020. And so what you need to do is copy the best, which is what everyone else did to them. So go to Manchester City, go to Bayern Munich. What are they doing? And steal that. There is an an incredible sense of legacy throughout the book because even there... Who are you really talking about? In a sense, is Pep Guardiola, right? Who has come from La Masia. He is. He is. He's moved that definition elsewhere, and it feels like even with with Ronald Koeman at the helm, there is still that influence of Cruyff. And you wonder how how far this might echo into the future. 
Well, Crowth made football, and so there'll always be an echo of Crowth all over football. He made modern football, I should say. But at Barcelona, there is also this kind of quasi-religious veneration of the Crowth figure. And so uh, they like coaches who's, who've experienced the laying on of hands by Crowth himself. And Kuman, you know, he played with Crowth, comes from Holland. He was Crowth's next door neighbor. He was the kind of disciple figure. But there comes a point, you know, Kuman is late 50s. Yeah. There comes a point when the disciples are gone themselves. And you have to kind of become slightly less religious in your uh, imitation of Crowth. I mean, Guardiola, is, it's a good point because what Guardiola did is what Barcelona didn't do. Guardiola realized I have to keep updating myself. I have to keep innovating. So 2012, he's the most successful coach in the world. What does he do? He quits at Barcelona and he goes on a sabbatical in New York for a year to learn new ideas. And he, go, he takes courses at Columbia University. He meets Kasparov, the chess player, he meets Woody Allen. And he's just trying to learn ideas again and think because he knows with the ideas of 2012, you're not going to win in 2013. And he updates himself at Bayern and again at Manchester City. And meanwhile, Barcelona stands still. And he pisses off a few soccer moms as well, as mm-hmm. I remember in your book at one point. So where is, is, where is the equivalent to, to the golden era Barcelona right now for you? Where do you, where do you see it cropping up? And please don't say Paris Saint-Germain. So, oh, say what you want. <laughs> I think that their golden era was longer than anyone else's has been in the 21st century, just because football moves so fast. So, you know, Bayern were very good and City and Liverpool, but none of them have really established a dominance that has lasted. And it's just a very, very difficult thing to do. I mean, even domestically, you know, Liverpool were, were dominant very, very briefly with this, this you know, brilliant forward-thinking team and coach. So I, I don't really see a dynasty arising. I mean, you know, living in Paris these last 20 years, I've watched PSG a lot. And in recent times, I remember thinking in the spring, Wow, they got some brilliant players. This is before Messi comes. You know, you got Mbappe and Neymar and Keylon Navas, incredible goalkeeper, and um, Marco Verratti, a couple of others. They don't really have a team. You know, it's not <laughs> like they um, uh, they have a system that works. And I don't know if they're going to progress much beyond that. They also have a forward line that doesn't defend. So I don't really see PSG as the next Barcelona. I see them more as a kind of. Harlem Globetrotters. Of course, they could win the Champions League. You know, who else has better players? Well, if they don't, what's the point? Um, Yeah, but if you're Qataris and you're essentially the Qatari state, which means the royal family, and you have tens of billions, hundreds of billions worth of oil and gas in the ground, I mean, it doesn't really Mm -hmm. matter. You know, for them, buying Messi is like me going out and buying a cup of coffee. Mm. There's no jeopardy, really, is there? They like being associated yeah. with him, basically, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's great sports washing for, for Qatar. And, um, you know, we're all talking about it now. And, you know, they'd love to win the Champions League. But if not, then not. Well, quite. All right, then. I think that's it from us today. Thank you so much for talking to us, Simon. We, we really enjoyed uh, this one. Is it? I mean, this is it, isn't it, really? There's not going to be an equivalent. You're not, you're not beavering away in the bowels of... Bayern Munich's uh, training ground, trying to figure out how to write another book. Like, is it impossible for you to, to replicate this in any other place? I, I don't think anyone would give me that access, and I don't really want to do it. I, I'm now in the process of finishing a book about the British elite, a book that has nothing to do with football at all. So uh, that's out next year. <laughs> all right, well, we'll look out for that. Um, thank you so much for joining us for the book club. Uh, Guys, tweet us if there's anything you think we should read next. I'm at KBL Mason, Jim. I'm at Jim Campbell TFR. Or at Football Ramble as well. And you can, of course, buy Simon's book, Barca, the inside story of the world's greatest football club from all reputable bookshops. We'll catch you next time on The Book Club. This was a Stack Production and part of the ACAST Creative Network. Cool fact. 
a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.